Chapter Nineteen of Charles the Bold, the Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stacy Dugan Wilcox. Charles the Bold, the Last Duke of Burgundy, by Ruth Putnam. Chapter Nineteen: The First Reverses, fourteen seventy-four to fourteen seventy-five. Who is this that cometh, this that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength? These words in Latin, on scrolls fluttering from the hands of living angels, met the eyes of Charles of Burgundy at his retarded arrival in Dijon, and the confident duke had no wish to disclaim the subtle flattery of the implied comparison between him and the subject of the words of the prophet. The traveller had slept at Parigny about a league from the capital of Burgundy, so as to make the last stage of his journey thither in leisurely state. Unpropitious weather on Saturday, January 22nd, the appointed day, made postponement of the ducal parade necessary, out of consideration for the precious hangings and costly ecclesiastical robes that were to grace the ceremonies of reception and investiture. Fortunately, Sunday, January 23rd, dawned fair, and heralds rode through the city streets at an early hour, proclaiming the duke's gracious intention to make his entry on that day. Immediately, tapestries were spread, and everyone was alert with the last preparations. Lavish was the display of biblical phrases, like that cited, which were planted along the ducal way, and on a succession of stagings erected for various exhibits. On the great city square, the platform was capacious, and many actors played out diverse roles. Here stood the scroll-bearing angels on either side of a living representation of Christ. In the background clustered three separate groups of people representing, respectively, the three estates. Above their heads more inscriptions were to be read. All the nations desired to see the face of Solomon. Behold him desired by all races— Master, look on us, thy people, were among the legends. The stately pageant, in which dignitaries, lay and ecclesiastical, from other parts of the duke's domains participated, proceeded past all these soothing insinuations that Charles of Burgundy resembled Solomon in more ways than one, to the church of saint Benigne. Here, pledges of mutual fidelity were exchanged between the Burgundians and their ruler— the abbe of Citeaux placed the ducal ring solemnly upon Charles's finger as a symbol, and he was invested with all the prerogatives of his predecessors. From the church, the train wound its way to the Saint-Chapelle, past more stages decorated with more flowers of scriptural phrase, such as, A lion which is strongest among beasts, and turneth not away for any. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The righteous are as bold as a lion, etc., Two days later, the concluding ceremonies of investiture were performed and followed by a banquet. Charles was arrayed in royal robes, and his hat was in truth a crown, gorgeous with gold, pearls, and precious stones. After a repast, prelates, nobles, and civic deputies were convened in a room adjoining the dining hall, where first they listened to a speech from the Chancellor. When he had finished, the duke himself delivered an harangue, wherein he expatiated on the splendors of the ancient kingdom of Burgundy. Wrongfully usurped by the French kings, it had been belittled into a duchy, a measure much to be regretted by the Burgundians. 
Then the speaker broke off abruptly with an ambiguous intimation that he had in reserve certain things that none might know but himself. What was the significance of these veiled allusions? It could not have been the simple scheme to erect a kingdom, because that was certainly known to many. Charles had, doubtless, an ostrich-like quality of mind which made him oblivious to the world's vision, but even he could hardly have ignored the prevalence of the rumors regarding the interview of Treve, rumors flying north, east, south, and west. Might not this suggestion of secrets yet untold have had reference to the ripening intentions of Edward the Fourth and himself to divide France between them? When his own induction into his heritage was accomplished, Charles was ready to pay the last earthly tribute to his parents. A cortege had been coming slowly from Bruges, bearing the bodies of Philip and Isabella to their final resting place in the tomb at Dijon, to which they were at last consigned. A few weeks more Charles tarried in the city of his birth, and then went to Dole, where he was invested with the sovereignty of the Franche-Comté, and confirmed the privileges. Thus, after seven years of possession de facto, he first actually completed the formalities needful for the legal acquisition of his paternal heritage. The expansion of that heritage had been steady for over half a century. Every inch of territory that had come under the shadow of the family's administration had remained there, quickly losing its ephemeral character, so that temporary holdings were regarded in the same light as the estates actually inherited. At least Charles, sovereign duke, count, overlord, mortgagee, made no distinction in the natures of his tenures. But just as the last link was legally riveted in his own chain of lands, he was to learn that there were other points of view. The statement is made and repeated that the report of the duke's after-dinner speech at Dijon was a fresh factor in alarming the people in Alsace and Switzerland about his intentions, and making them hasten to shake off every tie that connected them with Charles and his ambitious projects of territorial expansion. As a matter of fact, there had been for months constant agitation in the councils of the Swiss Confederation and the Lower Union as to the next action. Opposition to Sigismund had been long existent, antipathy to Austria was so deeply rooted that the idea of restoring that suzerainty in the Rhine Valley was slow to gain adherence. Probably the arguments that came from France were what carried conviction. It was a time when Louis spared no expense to attain the end he desired, while he posed as a benevolent neutral. His servants worked underground. Their open work was very cautious. It was French envoys, however, who announced to the Swiss Diet convened at Lucerne that Sigismund was quite ready to come to an understanding in regard to an alliance and the redemption of his mortgage lands. That was on January 21, 1474, the very day when the mortgagee was preparing to ride into Dijon and read the agreeable assurances of his wisdom, strength, and puissance. Yet a month, and Sigismund's envoys were seated on the official benches at the Basel Diet, ranking with the delegates from the cantons and the emissaries from France. On March 27th, the Diet met at Constance, and for three days a debate went on, which resulted in the drafting of the Ivigo Richtung, the Reglement Definitif, a document which contained a definite resolution that the mortgage lands were to be completely withdrawn from Burgundy and all financial claims settled. 
this resolution was subscribed to by Sigismund and the Swiss cantons. Further, it was decided to ignore one or two of the stipulations made at Saint-Omer, and to offer payment to Charles at Basel instead of Besançon. Meantime, that creditor, perfectly convinced in his own mind that the legends of his birthplace were correct in their rating of his character and qualities, again crossed Lorraine and entered Luxembourg, where he celebrated Easter. It was shortly after that festival, on April 17th, that a letter from Sigismund was delivered to him, announcing in rather casual and offhand terms that he was now in a position to repay the loan of 1469, made on the security of those Rhinelands. Therefore the Austrian would hand over at Basel 80,000 florins, 40,000 of the sum received by him, 10,000 paid in his behalf to the Swiss, and 30,000 which he understood that Charles had expended during his temporary incumbency, and he, Sigismund, would resume the sovereignty in Alsace. It was all very simple, at least Sigismund's wish was. The expressions employed in the paper were, however, so ambiguous, the language so involved, that Charles expended severe criticism on his cousin's style before he proceeded to answer his subject matter. To that, he replied that the bargain between him and Sigismund was none of his seeking. The latter had implored his protection from the Swiss, had begged relief in his financial straits. Touched by his petitions, Charles had acceded to his prayers, and the lands had enjoyed security under Burgundian protection as they never had under Austrian. Charles had duly acquitted himself of his obligations. He had done nothing to forfeit his title. The conditions of redemption offered by Sigismund were not those expressly stipulated. If a commission were sent to Besançon, the duke would see to it that the merits of the case were properly examined." If, on the contrary, you shall adhere to the purpose you have declared, in violation of the terms of the contract and of your princely word, we shall make resistance, trusting with God's help that our ability in defense shall not prove inferior to what we have used to repulse the attacks of the Swiss, those attacks from which you sought and received our protection." Before this letter reached its destination, the duke's deputy in the mortgaged lands had already found his resources wholly inadequate to maintain his master's authority. After Charles departed from Alsace, Hagenbach's increased insolence and abandonment of all the restraint that he had shown while awaiting the duke's visit soon became unbearable. The deliberations in Switzerland concerning their return to Austrian domination also naturally affected the Alsacians, and made them bolder in resenting Hagenbach's aggressions. Thon and Enzisheim were both firm in refusing admission to his garrisons. Brissac was in his hands already, and her fortifications held by mercenaries, but an order to the citizens to work, one and all, upon the defenses, produced a sudden disturbance with very serious results. It was at Eastertide, and the command to desecrate a hallowed festival, one especially cherished in the Rhinelands, proved the final provocation to rebellion. There is a black story in the Strasbourg Chronicle, moreover, that this misuse of Easter Day was not Hagenbach's real crime. He simply wished to get all combatants out of the city before butchering the inhabitants, and his purpose was discovered in time. That charge does not, however, seem substantiated by other evidence, but there is no doubt that the citizens lashed themselves into a state of fury, fell upon the mercenaries, and killed many of them in spite of their own unarmed condition. 
Hagenbach, driven back into his lodgings, appeared at the window and offered various concessions, being actually humbled and intimidated by the unexpected turning of the submissive folk against him. But the revolutionary spirit raged beyond the reach of conciliatory words. Some of the more intelligent burghers endeavored to give a show of propriety to events by promptly re-establishing their own ancient council, arbitrarily abolished by Hagenbach, while taking a new oath to the Duke of Burgundy, according to the formula of 1469. They also dispatched envoys to the Duke with explanations of their proceedings, stating further that it was Hagenbach's misrule alone to which protest was made, that they were not in revolt against Charles. The latter answered, "'Send Hagenbach to me.' But the provisional government, by the time they received this order, felt strong enough to disregard it, and to continue to act on their own initiative. Hagenbach was cast not only into prison, but into irons. All fear of and respect for his authority was thrown to the winds, his offer of fourteen thousand florins as ransom being sternly refused." Deputations came from the Confederation to congratulate the officials de facto and to promise aid. The next step gave the lie direct to the message sent to Charles, upholding his authority while protesting against his lieutenant. Sigismund was urged to return to his own without further delay for legal formalities with his creditor. He assented. On April 30th, accordingly, the Austrian duke arrived in Brissac and picked up the reins of authority which he had joyfully dropped four years previously. The rabble welcomed his coming with effusion, singing a ready parody of an Easter hymn. Christ is arisen, the land folked is in prison. Let us all rejoice. Sigismund is our choice. Kili Oliezan. Had he not been snared, evil had it fared. But now that he is ta'en, his craft is all in vain. Kili Oliezan. Thus it was under Sigismund's auspices that the late governor was brought to trial. Instruments of torture sent from Basel were employed to make Hagenbach confess his crimes. But there was nothing to confess. As a matter of fact, the charges against him were for well-known deeds, the character of which depended on the point of view. What the Alsacians declared were infringements of their rights, the Duke's deputy stoutly asserted were acts justified by the terms of the treaty. In regard to his private career, the prisoner persisted in his statement that he was no worse than other men, and that all his so-called victims had been willing and well rewarded for their submission to him. On May 9th, the preliminaries were declared over, and the trial began before a tribunal whose composition is not perfectly well known, but which certainly included delegates from the chief cities of the Landgraviat, and from Strasbourg, Basel, and Bern. The trial was practically lynch law, in spite of the cloak of legality thrown over it. Charles alone was Hagenbach's principal, and he alone was responsible for his lieutenant's acts. The intrinsic incompetence of the court was hotly urged by Jean Irma of Basel, Hagenbach's self-appointed advocate, but his defense was rejected. Public opinion insisted upon extreme measures, and the sentence of capital punishment was promptly followed by execution. Petitions from the prisoner that he might die by the sword and be permitted to bequeath a portion of his property to the church of Saint-Étienne at Brissac were granted. The remainder of his wealth was confiscated by Sigismund, who had withdrawn to Fribourg during the progress of the trial. Even Hagenbach's bitterest foes acknowledged that the late governor made a dignified and Christian exit from the life he had not graced. 
Charles is said to have beaten well the messenger who brought him the news of this trial and execution, in the very presence of Sigismund, who had not yet bought back his rights in the land Graviat, where he had appointed Oswald von Thierstein as governor, and where he was thus presuming to use sovereign power. This was not sufficient, however, to make the duke change his own plans. Stefan von Hagenbach was entrusted with the commission of punishing the Alsacians for his brother's ignominious deposition, and he did his task grimly. According to the Strasbourg chronicler, this Hagenbach, at the north, and his colleague, the Count of Blamont, at the south, did not have more than six or eight thousand men apiece, but they left Hun-like reputations behind them. Devastation, slaughter, pillage in houses and churches, all in the name of the duke, contributed to the zeal with which the Austrians' return was ratified by popular acclamation, and with which the contingents sent to Alsace by the Confederates were received. Sigismund's letter to Charles is casual in tone and obscure in phraseology. A statement presented somewhat later to the emperor by the Boss Union is more precise in the justification offered for the events and in the grievances rehearsed. That is, Sigismund treats the transaction as a purely financial one, naturally completed between him and his creditor by the offer to liquidate his debt. The plea made by the Alsacians and their friends is that Charles had failed to keep his solemn engagements, and that his appointed lieutenant had been peculiarly odious and had broken the laws of God and man, and that the mercenaries employed by him, the Burgundians, Lombardians, and their fellows, had pitilessly ravaged the county of Ferret, the Zundgau, and the diocese of Basel. The charges are itemized. All this, well known to the Duke of Burgundy, has neither been checked nor punished by him. In consequence, our gracious seigneur of Austria has been obliged to restore the land and people to his sovereignty and that of the House of Austria, which he has done with God's aid to prevent the complete annihilation and total destruction of land and people. Charles did not hasten to Alsace to settle matters in person, but pursued his intention of reducing Cologne to the archbishop's control, undoubtedly thinking that the base, which would then be open to the archbishop's protector on the lower Rhine, would facilitate his operations in the upper valleys. Meanwhile, the emperor Frederic had emphatically declared that he alone was the defender of the diocese, and that the unholy alliance between Robert and Charles was a menace to the empire. His letters to Charles exhorted him to abandon the enterprise and to accept mediation. Those to the electors, princes, and cities of the empire urged them to defend Cologne against Burgundy until he himself arrived on the scene. There was a hot correspondence between all parties concerned from which nothing resulted. Charles had various reasons for delay. There was trouble in other quarters of his domain. Flanders was in a state of ferment at his requisitions for money, and the Franche-Comte was on the point of making active resistance to the imposition of the Gabelle. In view of all these complications, Charles decided to prolong his truce with Louis XI to May 1, 1475. That monarch was well pleased to continue to pursue his own plans under cover of neutrality. The determination of the anti-Burgundian coalition in Germany to keep Charles within the limits of his own estates was a pleasant sight to the French king, and he felt that he could afford to wait. In June, an edict was sent forth from Luxembourg, forbidding all owing allegiance to the Duke of Burgundy to have any commercial relations with the rebels of Cologne or of Alsace or with the cities of the Boss Union, 
and declaring the duke's intention to take the field at once to reinstate the archbishop in his rightful see. This was a declaration of war, and was speedily followed by the duke's advance to Maestricht, where he spent a few days in July collecting a force which finally amounted to about twenty thousand men. On the twenty-ninth he sat down before Neuss, which had again emphatically refused entry to him and his troops. Three days the duke gave himself for the reduction of the town, but there he remained encamped for nearly a whole year. Neuss was resolved to resist to the last extremity, while Bon, Andernach, and Cologne contributed their assistance by worrying and harassing the besiegers to the best of their ability. It was a period when Charles seemed to have only one sure ally, and that was Edward of England, whose own plans were forming for a mighty enterprise, no less than a new invasion of France. On July 25th, the very day that Charles was on his march up to Neuss, his envoys signed at London a treaty wherein the Duke promised Edward 6,000 men to aid him to reconquer his realm of France. Nothing loath to dispose of his future chickens, Edward in his turn pledged himself to cede to Charles and his heirs, without any lien of vassalage, the Duchy of Bar, the Countships of Champagne, Nouvelle, Rutel, Eau, and Guise, all the towns on the Somme, and all the estates of the Count of Saint-Paul. Other territories of Charles were to be exempt from homage. Yes, and by June 1st, 1475, Edward would land in France and set about his conquests, nor were commercial interests forgotten. To the Duchess his sister, to the Flemings, is accorded permission to take from England wool, woolen goods, brass, lead, and to carry thither foreign merchandise. The year when Charles was waiting before the gates of Neuss was full of many abortive diplomatic efforts on the part of both the Duke and Louis Ons, and it was the latter who managed to save something even from broken bargains. The Swiss not only counted on his friendship, but were constantly encouraged by his money, which emboldened them to send a letter of open defiance to Charles. We declare to your most serene highness and to all of your people, in behalf of ourselves and our friends, an honorable and open war. To the herald who delivered this document, Charles answered, Oh, bairn, bairn! He felt that he had been betrayed. This was on October 26th. The defiance was followed by a descent of the mountaineers upon Alsace, which Charles had not yet released from his grasp. Stephen von Hagenbach prepared to defend Burgundian interests at Ericor, a good strategic position on the tiny Lusine. Here, the Swiss were about to besiege him when the Count of Blamont arrived with two bodies of Italian mercenaries, aggregating more than twelve thousand men, and attempted to draw off the besieging force. His plan failed. The tables were turned. It was the Burgundians who were fiercely attacked and who lost the day. Hagenbach was forced to surrender, obtaining honorable terms, however, and Sigismund put a garrison into Ericor on November 16th. This was a tremendous surprise to Charles. That cowherds could repulse his well-trained troops was a thought as bitter as it was unexpected. But he put aside all idea of punishing them for the moment, and continued to reduce news to the obedience of the good archbishop, and Hermann of Hesse continued to aid the town in its determined resistance. The opprobrious names applied to the would-be and baffled conqueror at this time are curiously similar to the epithets hurled at Napoleon a few centuries later. He was compared to Antichrist himself, with demoniac attributes added, when Alexander was felt to be too mild a comparison. 
there was still a terrible fear of the duke's ambition even though in the face of all europe the swiss had repulsed his men and neuss obstinately refused to open her gates while the world wondered at the duke's obstinacy displayed in the wrong place the belief expressed several times by comines that god troubled charles's understanding out of very pity for france was a current rumor at the end of april an english embassy arrived at the camp which was kept in a marvellous state of luxury even though disease was not successfully curbed in the ranks the urgent entreaty of the embassy was that charles should raise this useless siege fruitless as it promised to be owing to the difficulty of cutting off the town's supplies edward the fourth was almost ready to dispatch his invading army he implored his dear brother to send him transports and to prepare to receive him when he landed a letter from jean pastone gives a glimpse into the situation for tidings here there be but few save that the assiege lasteth still by the duke of burgogne afore Neuss, and the emperor hath besieged also not far from there a castle and another town in likewise wherein the duke's men ben and also the french king men say is coming right to the water off somme with four thousand spears and some men have that he will at the day of breaking off truce or else before set upon the duke countries here when i hear more i shall send you more tidings the king's ambassadors sir thomas mongolmayer and the master of the rolls be coming homewards from noose and as for me i think i should be sick but if i see it for it is so that to-morrow i purpose to ride into flanders to purvey me of horse and hernies and percase i shall see the assiege at noose ere i come again there was more reason for charles to be heart-sick at the sight than for jean pastone and he did grow weary of the further waiting and anxious for his truce with louis was drawing to a close on may twenty second there was a skirmish between his troops and the imperial forces wherein charles claimed the victory in reality there was none on either side but the semblance was sufficient to soothe his amour propre and to convince him that an accommodation with frederic would not detract from his dignity a large fleet of dutch flatboats had been dispatched to help convey the english army thirsting for conquest across the sea six thousand men in the duke's pay too were ready to meet edward the fourth and swell his escort as he marched to rheims for his coronation other matters also demanded charles's personal attention months had elapsed and ericor was unpunished bairn had not been reproved rene of lorraine was formally admitted to the league of constance on april eighteenth fourteen seventy five and was now ready openly to abjure the protection he had once accepted from burgundy there was a touch of old king rene's theatrical taste in his grandson's method of dispatching the herald who rode up to the duke's gorgeous tent of red velvet on may tenth the man was however so overcome at the first view of les temeraires that he hastily delivered up his letter and threw down the blood-stained gauntlet which he carried as a gage of war without uttering a word then he fell on his knees imploring the duke's pardon charles was so little displeased at the signs of the impression his presence made that instead of being angry with the man he gave him twelve florins for his good news the terms of the declaration of war carried by the herald were as follows to thee charles of burgundy in behalf of the very high etc duke of laurent my seigneur i announce defiance with fire and blood against thee thy countries thy subjects thy allies and other charge further have i not the reply was straightforward 
Herald, I have heard the exposition of thy charge, whereby thou hast given me subject for joy, and, to show you how matters are, thou shalt wear my robe with this gift, and shall tell thy master that I will find myself briefly in his land, and my greatest fear is that I may not find him. In order that thou mayest not be afraid to return, I desire my marshal and the king-at-arms of the Toisson d'Or to convoy thee in perfect safety, for I should be sorry if thou didst not make thy report to thy master as befits a good and loyal officer. Thus was Charles pressed from the south and lured to the north, excellent reason for obeying the order of the Pope's legate that duke and emperor must lay down arms under pain of excommunication did either belligerent refuse. The armistice accepted on May 28th was followed by a nine-months truce signed on June 12th. It was a truce strictly to the advantage of Frederic and Charles. The Rhine cities, Louis Ons, René of Lorraine, were alike ignored and disappointed in the expectations they had based on Frederic. End of chapter 19. Recording by Stacy Dugan Wilcox.